why are we here? Like, I don't mean like here on Sunday morning on a Father's Day kind of thing. But I mean in the like bigger 30,000 foot view level of why are we here existing on earth? I mean, this is like a big question, so it's kind of unfair to just kind of throw that at you, but the way that we answer that question deeply affects the way that we live. Or you could flip that on its head and say the way that we live, whether we would say it or not, demonstrates our answer to that question. This week we're continuing our Holy Land series where we are diving into the whole lot that what the Bible says about creation, our place in creation, and our responsibility for it, where we are trying to understand what the Bible says about what this world, this universe is that God created. We want to know what the Bible says. We want to know what it means for us to live in the world that God created. And it's also an opportunity where I'm sharing some of the things that I learned in my time in Kenya where we were studying these things very specifically. But how we answer the what are we here for question also deeply impacts the way that we interact with the rest of creation. Not just how we choose to live our lives, but how we view the rest of the creation that God made. And so as we're diving into this, we're going to be spending some time together in the early chapters of Genesis to see why are we here? What did God create humanity for and how does that impact how we live and our interaction with the creation around us? So we're going to start in Genesis 1, 26 through 29. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. This is God creating humanity. The account that Genesis gives says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the living creatures that move on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. Now, what's something you notice about how God creates humanity? One, he creates them in his own image. This is something that is not said to be true of anything else that God creates. Out of all of creation, there is something unique about humanity that is created in the image of God. Now, when we think image of God, we have all kinds of like, it's a churchy thing that we often hear. But to think like an ancient Israelite is to think of living in somewhere in the the Middle East where there's uh, kings that rule empires. And so say King Nebuchadnezzar who ruled Babylon would demonstrate his authority over an area by erecting an image of himself 
It would be kind of like a a divine-like looking statue that he would set up. If you're familiar with Daniel, you know that Nebuchadnezzar loves setting up statues about himself. But this was the image of Nebuchadnezzar. It was a way of demonstrating that this is the space where the king rules. The ancient Israelites were told, you don't make images of God. You don't create idols of the things that he made to worship because God had already created an image. He created humanity. Humanity in his likeness to reflect him, but to rule with him and on his behalf over the creation that he made. As we see in the repeated rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the living creatures on the ground over and over in this account. The question is, what does it mean for us to rule over the fish and the birds and the creatures of the earth? What does it mean to fill the earth and subdue it? If you are reading maybe a different translation of the Bible, uh, it says that you will have dominion over the creatures that exist. The problem is, the way that humanity has often taken this is we have read dominion and rule and subdue. And instead of seeing that from the perspective of what does it mean for God to rule and subdue and have dominion, we have twisted it. Where we have made it into not dominion but dominate. Rather than subdue and fill, we have turned it into devour. And so the question for us as human beings created in the image of God, given this task and responsibility, what does it mean for us to rule and subdue God's way? What does it mean to be a ruler of creation? The New Testament talks about Jesus as the image of the invisible God. That if we want to understand what it means for us to be the image of God, we look at Jesus, who is the truest and untainted picture of what that means. And when Jesus talked about ruling, he talked about serving. When Jesus demonstrated what it meant to be a master, he washed his disciples' feet. I found this picture this week. It's it's a, a beautiful depiction from the Ethiopian Uh, Orthodox Church of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. If we are to take Jesus as the pinnacle of what it means to be the image of God, what does it mean for Jesus to rule? And for us as the image of God, it is to serve, to take responsibility for, to not seek to dominate or devour Let's go back to Genesis, and we'll unpack this more, what Genesis says about it. Genesis 2 is another kind of account of creation. Genesis 1 is like the cosmic creation that God does. Genesis 2 is a zoom in to the Garden of Eden. And the way that it talks about God creating the man, it says this, Then God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now, we're going to get geeky here a little bit and we're going to learn some Hebrew. We are all familiar with Adam and Eve, but the word Adam, Adam, is literally Hebrew for man. 
So when Genesis 2 and 3 is talking about Adam, it is, it is, his name is humanity. And so when God is forming Adam from the ground, he is a forming, forming Adam from the Adama. It is a purposeful wordplay and connection of words that exists. It's this way of the authors of Genesis in talking about the creation account where he is saying we are intricately tied in and uniquely, uh, like we, we are tied in with creation. Let's not jump the gun and say we are more like God than we are creation. We are still firmly on the creation side of the creator-creation distinction. And we ought to see ourselves as Adam from the Adama, as humans that come from the earth. That we are intricately connected and part of creation the, rest, the way that the rest of creation is. The way that some Hebrew scholars have tried to talk about this in English, they talk about um, the earthling from the earth. But don't, don't import all your like alien baggage with earthling. But when we talk about earthlings, like we, it's a language of saying from the earth. Or another way that, that one author I read talks about it is humans from the humus, from the, the fertile soil that exists on the ground. We are Adam from the Adama. And God put Adam in the garden to work it and to take care of it. The first thing that God has Adam do is be a gardener. What I want you to do is care for Eden, to take care of it. What humanity has been created for is to partner with its creator, the one who formed existence out of nothing, who tamed chaos and brought order, we are to join him in the ordering of the chaos. We are to join him in the care and cultivation of creation. This is a different picture than dominating and devouring. When you think of gardening, even if, if you are someone who is intricately involved in that in your own home and property, it is an ordering. Uh, it, my gardening is not very much an order, ordering of chaos. But many of you, as you garden, it is, a, it is a taming of the chaos. It is bringing order where there has not been order. It is working with the natural way that God has made creation to be able to help it to flourish. Humanity were the original keepers of the garden. But, if we're honest, this has not been our experience of the relationship between humanity and the rest of God's creation. Especially over the last several centuries, as industrialization has kicked in, as, as technology has progressed, as we have been able to sit back and be much more comfortable in our lifestyles, we have been able to do all of those things often while neglecting the kind of behind-the-scenes exploitation of creation that is necessary in order for us to live as comfortably as we do. We love the fact that we have electricity and power and the batteries that we do, but 
the kind of mining that is required in order to make that happen is incredibly devastating to the earth. We've become a people where consumption is just like naturally what we do. We're called consumers in terms of uh, the economic relationship that we have with uh, organizations around us. And this is a deeper issue than just, oh, I want the new iPhone every year or you know, the, the sense of every time I go to Costco or Walmart, I have to come out with a heaping cart. There's something even deeper to it than that. We as human beings, tainted by sin the way that we are, have a tendency to want what is beyond what God naturally made for us. We have a tendency to not be satisfied with what God has given, but to reach for what is beyond that. We see this played out in the garden, where the serpent comes and said, did God really say you can't eat from this? And Eve, she sees the fruit that it looks good for food and appetizing. So she reaches out and grabs it. Adam's no better. He's like, yeah, okay, I'll try some. When we move beyond what God has provided for us in the natural working of how he created us, we are feeding our sense of greed. We are feeding our sense of dissatisfaction with God's provision. And we, like Adam and Eve, are grasping for fruit beyond what God has provided for us in the garden. Genesis 3 continues the story. Because of all this that happened with the fruit in the garden from the forbidden tree, God says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. The Adama is affected by the actions of Adam. Through painful toil you will eat fruit, food from it all the days of your life. I will pro- it, will, sorry, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. There is an interconnection between the fate of Adam and the Adama between the human and the humus, the earthling and the earth. And listen, there's all kinds of political discussions going on about climate change and human responsibility, about what our connection is in terms of the, the change in climate that we are seeing around us. And I think those are very important things for us to actually consider about what it means for us as the image of God to see our responsibility to the world around us. And there is biblical precedent to say that the sinful actions of humans has effect on the rest of creation around it. The world is different because of human sin. Romans 8 carries on this point where Paul says, for creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. 
we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Part of the reality of human fallenness, of the fact that we are those who are affected and corrupted and influenced by sin, is that as human beings we have failed our jobs as keepers of the garden. That has been another play out of the fall in our lives. Where we, in our sin, have treated the creation we are responsible for not as something that we have dominion and rule God's way, but something that we dominate and devour our way. And our sin has affected more than just us. And so there is space for us in recognizing this to to come to a place of, of realization and confession. To say the very thing that God had created humanity for, to care and take responsibility for his good creation, we have not done. And so there is a way in which we are held responsible for that before God. And also, we do have a creator who sent his perfect image into the world that despite our sin, despite our misuse of creation, despite the way that our actions have negatively impacted others as well, he reaches out to us. He pursues us by his grace. And that he pays the price for our dropping the ball of our responsibility as humans. We have a God of grace who despite any sin, Through our faith in him, he takes it upon himself on the cross and we can be forgiven. We, as those who were made to care for the garden, have fallen short. For all have sinned and fallen short of the grace of God. But thank God that through Jesus Christ, he provides forgiveness He provides grace and he demonstrates us a new way of life for those of us who are forgiven, who are empowered by his spirit that we might reflect the true image of God demonstrated in Jesus, the one who rules by serving. So what does this look like for us? For those of us who trust in Christ for our salvation, who have received his forgiveness, even for the sin that we commit against creation itself, what does it mean for us to walk as the image of God in our responsibility and relationship with creation moving forward? It's complicated. Because I think when we talk about the climate, when we talk about creation, some of our immediate knee-jerk reaction is to go like, well, I'm going to go full environmentalist. And we kind of just pendulum swing. But it's complicated. Because we not only live in a world where our relationship with creation has been broken, our relationship with the rest of humanity has been broken, our relationship with wealth has been broken. 
And so we are living in a world where we have to hold the tension between our relationship to the planet and the relationship and well-being of people and between just like economics and people being able to, to make a living. And so some of the, the teachers that I had in, in Kenya talked about this kind of Venn diagram of planet, people, and profit that I have here up on the screen. That when we talk about being good stewards who rule creation God's way, we need to understand that we need to have a right relationship with planet, that we need to have a dignified, right relationship with humanity, and we need to provide ways where people can make a living and support themselves. And so our immediate reaction to go entirely down the environmental train and... and, and condemn people for trying to make a livelihood is, is not helpful. Talking with some of our teachers in Kenya, they talked about how Kenyan farmers, who are majority smallholder farmers, are so drastically affected by every whim of the European Union's uh, environmental policies that they have to retool almost every season in farming. And so for poor African farmers, it's it's not an option to be able to constantly try to live up and comply. There are reasonable things that can be done in order to make farming more environmentally friendly and sustainable. But to constantly just beat an agenda over and over is, is actually not making it tenable for people to keep up. Unless you are a farmer that constantly has the money for infrastructure uh, that you are investing in constantly, which I don't know who does. We also see it in, uh, there was a recent CBC article where uh, someone was talking about the reality of climate change, which I think is a real thing and I think we need to actually take hold of as the people of God. But her response is, I don't think we should have any more children. Like, I'm not going to have kids because of environmental degradation, and that's me taking my step towards that. Now listen, people are going to wrestle through the reality of childbearing and all of those kinds of things. But for us to say, all right, we're going to so get in on environmentalism that we are going to completely forget people, we are, we are hitting one side of it where our, our environmentalism becomes another legalistic religion that nobody else is living up to. But on the other side, we can completely go down a, a humanistic perspective where all we are doing is trying to make life better and easier and more comfortable for people, regardless of what that does to the planet, regardless of what is financially responsible. I think this is often where we find ourselves is, is we are trying to live a comfortable, happy life. And we don't actually realize behind the curtain what is required in order for us to live that way. We don't see the way that our Old Navy jeans are washed in waters that are just like put into the, the, the water systems in Bangladesh where like people just can't drink water because of the wash of my jeans where we don't see the, the fact that our lifestyle that we are constantly accumulating is not sustainable financially. Where we are creating 
devastating impacts on the creation around us to be able to sustain our comfort. And it's easy to point out the uh, drive for wealth and when profit becomes our thing where we are living our lives to try to die with the most and best toys and accumulate and build our storehouses which just continues to feed our greed regardless of the cost to other people or the planet. We need to live somewhere in the middle where as good rulers of creation God's way, we are recognizing the impact that we have on creation, where we want to live in good relationship with other human beings in dignified ways, and we are able to help others continue to make a living. But I think questions for us to ask ourselves in the midst of this is, do I recognize how my lifestyle is dependent on and contributes to the degradation of the environment? how dependent my consuming habits are on poor farmers getting paid very little for my coffee or for the Bangladeshi mom who is working 16-hour days for cents in order to make my clothes. How might I be invited to serve creation and love my neighbor by choosing a countercultural way of living? How can I live as Adam in right relationship with the Adama? What if there are deeper issues at play? Where we feel like we need to live our life at such a pace or at such a level of consumption where we are always running, we are always rushing, we are already always trying to keep up with the lifestyle of our neighbors. Like we use the phrase keeping up with the Joneses, Right? And there's more reality to it than we realize. But here's the thing. We're not all going to be able to afford to buy an electric car. We're not all going to be able to change our lifestyle to be able to live on the land. And so we need creativity of how do we live in a unique way as the image of God in right relationship with creation and neighbor. But here's the thing. We are made in the image of a creative God. The God who created the world out of nothing. What if the spirit that hovered over the waters and formed creation is also empowering us for creative living in the midst of a consumer culture? What if part of ruling in the image of God is also a call to creativity? Creativity in the way we live, where we can have godly dominion rather than devouring, where we can use our unique role as the image of God to contribute to the flourishing of creation and neighbor and combat the negative effects that we have made towards creation and neighbor where we can live somewhere in the healthy center of planet, people, and profit. I want to share with you a few ways where I was blown away by how this is getting played out while I was traveling in Kenya. Part of the trip was a, 
it was a course of learning about creation care and food security in the midst of a place in the world that has been drastically affected by climate change in the way that we have not experienced yet here. Where I was there in May, which is meant to be the rainy season, and it's the first rainy season they've had in three years. And so they're trying to figure out how do we live, how do we farm, how do we provide food for our culture when things are changing so drastically. So the first uh, slide I have here of pictures, we had these classroom sessions with two Kenyan agronomists. They, they study farming, sustainable farming practices. Their name were Apollo and Ricky. They were, they were incredible guys who not only taught us a whole lot about the environment and farming and the economics of what it means to be an African farmer, they also taught us some dance moves which I will not share coming back from Kenya. But we deeply appreciate the three days that we had with these guys because they run a business where they are helping to train small holding farmers uh, practices of conservation agriculture where they can actually farm in a way that doesn't deplete their soil in the way that the, pra- the farming practices that they were used to were doing, where they can actually have a greater crop yield, where they can actually farm better and uh, have better yields and also have less negative impact on the land that they're farming on by doing this. And so after doing these classroom sessions, we got to tour around and we met uh, Francis and Sarah, who have... Uh, a farm near the city of Embu uh, around Mount Kenya. And they have been kind of a pilot project for some of these conservation agriculture, CA, uh, farming practices. And what I loved about this, they were so proud of what was going on. Like, I, they were standing in the midst of their cornfield, and the smile on their face was contagious. And, and what was funny, we asked them, like, if you had just seen this on paper and someone told you these things will work, but you never did it, would you believe it? I said, no, of course not. But it was, wasn't until they started putting these things into practice. The corn that they are standing in front of is three weeks old. And we looked across the street to the other farm that wasn't doing the same thing, that planted at the same time, and their corn was half as high. And what was really encouraging about this is Sarah has been able to take more ownership in the farming where where some of the practices that they've incorporated have kind of been her responsibility to do. And so there's this sense of shared ownership on the farm that they have now as they have been beginning to, uh, to incorporate some of these farming practices. The next slide that I have is uh, a group of women and Uh, agriculture teachers who have been doing this project where they are empowering women by creating these these sustainable gardening projects where if you are in a drought drought susceptible area, just even growing the vegetables you need to eat, like the water is precious. And so they've developed this program where where while the men are working, the, the women come together and they are building for each other these vertical gardens that use a fraction of the water needed for if you had a garden plot. And this will feed them for six months worth of, of uh, kitchen 
um, vegetables that they'll use uh, in their day-to-day cooking. What was very cool is we got to, I don't have pictures of this, we got to build this with them, and uh, they were not used to white people picking up shovels and helping them. And so there was actually like a level of like, oh, we just expect you to be the people that come in with the money. And to be able to actually like break down some stereotypes that existed was really cool. But also what's happening here is this was on one woman's property and these neighbors that she had from farms around her were helping her build it. And this was like their training session. And now what they're doing the next week after is they're going to the next woman's farm and they're going to help her build it. And then the next woman's farm until women across their community have these gardens built up. One of the coolest things we saw on the next slide was a farmer's credit union that was created by the African churches and schools, African Christian churches and schools, the denomination that we're partnered with there. Where what they're doing is creating these uh, community-based farmer-run credit unions where they all contribute in and they're all able to make small loans in order to pay for farming inputs like the seed and fertilizer they need, the changes they need to make to their business model in order to have a more sustainable conservation agriculture, to pay for medical bills, and to pay for school fees for their kids. This credit union was amazing where the treasurer that you can see on the left there with the cash box. The cash box had three locks on it. So it's three separate people from the community who have a key to open it up. So there's no question about, you know, is anyone helping themselves to the box? When they tally up all the totals of what is in the box, it's spoken out loud to the group and they use collective memory as a form of accountability. So the treasurer is writing down the number that they have, but at the next meeting, They're asking the group, what was the number from last week? So everyone has this sense of accountability and ownership of what's going on because they know there's, you know, 40,000 Kenyan shillings or whatever in there because they've all been invited to be part of it. And what they told us in the years that they've done this and the 350-some loans that they've given out, there's only been one default on a loan. That this has been something that has helped them send their kids to school. It's been something that has helped them shift to more sustainable forms of agriculture and has brought a deep sense of ownership and participation uh, in the community among these farmers. Lastly, this next slide, this is is fun for me because something that we talk about is like, okay, you got to be good to the environment but not realizing how dependent people are on certain practices with the environment that aren't sustainable for their livelihood. So when we were on the Indian Ocean coast in a city called Watamu, it borders uh, an ancient forest. This this ancient forest that uh, used to span all the way from Somalia down to Mozambique, and now this is one of the remaining small patches of it. And this ancient forest is incredibly uh, uh, diverse in terms of an ecosystem, and it is one of the few places that has the remaining indigenous trees uh, that were from the area. But if you live next to a big forest and you need charcoal to cook your food, you're going to go in and cut down trees in order to you know, make the charcoal that you need. And charcoal is not an efficient form of, of cooking the way that it was done. And so what one organization started doing was, was funding a project where they've 
been creating jobs, but they've also been able to hand out these uh, cooking insulators to families in the community, where you can see on the left here, it's this clay insert that they put into where they normally cooked on an open fire, where now their burning of charcoal is incredibly fuel efficient versus an open fire, where they are using a fraction of the amount of charcoal that they used to use to be able to cook, which means less runs into the forest to be able to cut down old indigenous trees to be able to make firewood from, where it's shifting the perspective of there are different ways we can do this that helps. Recently, I've started cooking on a big green egg and noticing the difference that the insulation makes in terms of the amount of charcoal that I burn. And this is, this is like a version of that where the amount of charcoal that is burned in order to be able to cook the food is significantly less. The same organization created this project where they are growing trees that they gift to, to families of children at the local school so that they can grow a tree, a fast-growing tree that grows lumber right on their yard so that when they need building supplies, when they need uh, fuel, they have this fast-growing tree on their yard that they can draw from rather than going back into this indigenous forest and cutting down these ancient trees. The creativity that I saw. It's not just let's hand out things that people need, but let's create a sustainable way where people, planet, and profit is sustainable, where we can work in good relationship. So the question for us is how are we invited to be creative? How are we invited to look at the way that we're living? to see the impact that it has on people around us and the world around us. And instead say, I am created in the image of a creative God. How is God inviting me to live as a keeper of the garden? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have made all things good. You said it is good. When you finished your creation, you said it's very good. So God, we want to live in this kind of embracing the goodness of what you created, recognizing that the world has been tainted and affected by sin. God, would you help us, Holy Spirit, to to be creative in how we see the world around us, to see our neighbors, to see those relationships get played out. And may we walk forward in a way where we are, are, are acknowledging the role that you've given us, where we are relying on the grace of Jesus to empower us and seeking to walk in a good way uh, with the rest of creation. Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.